From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, coronavirus and polarization. Is COVID-19 the sort of common enemy that unites Americans politically? Then, the renowned animal scientist and autism educator Temple Grandin, she says under this stay-at-home order, kids should be thinking about life aboard the International Space Station. Sleeping, eating, dealing with garbage, it's tight quarters, and they have to get along. Also, how one resident of Nederland is trying to save small-town businesses. Plus, when you venture out for a physically distant stroll, keep your eyes and ears on the sky. Tips for first-time birders as many species fly in for spring. And haunting new music sung over a telephone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our mic checks don't usually make it to air, but these days, when we ask guests for audio levels, they're quick to share how coronavirus is messing with their lives. When we hopped on the phone with our first guest, he mentioned his upcoming wedding scheduled for September and his concerns around COVID-19. We're inviting 120 people, right? So, like, the probability that one person has it, it's actually pretty high. So, like, imagine if the aftermath of your wedding is that, like, 16 people get sick. Like, that would suck. Anyway, so, um, but all things considered, we have a lovely little town home here next to the park, and we have cars and safety and plenty of space. And so. So that is Stephen Hawkins of Denver. He was okay with us sharing that tape, by the way a quick picture of the personal realities of this moment. But what about the political realities? Well, Stephen is research director for More in Common, a nonprofit that fights polarization around the world. We wondered, is COVID-19 the sort of common enemy that brings Americans of different political stripes together? Is the virus sort of like the Soviet Union or Osama bin Laden? It's an apt comparison because it has this universalizing effect across Americans where there's a pretty non-controversial element to the sense of threat that people feel and that there's a real common narrative that we're seeing. There hasn't been a kind of common story in the United States for quite some time. And this is one. And people are viewing it, whether they're Republican or Democrat, They're viewing this as a moment of crisis. They're concerned about the economy and they're concerned about the public health of the country. And they're very much viewing certain classes of people, especially nurses and medical personnel, as heroes in this time. And that common threat is something which we don't see except for in very extraordinary circumstances. That's not to say there isn't a difference between left and right, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to say that your work includes following a diverse group of American voters over the long haul, gauging their views. And what precisely would you say is uniting people? Is it fear? Well, I think if I put it most neatly, I would say Americans are not less politically divided but they are less political at this moment. Uh. So really what's happened is people's attention has shifted. Donald Trump and the division in Washington, D.C. is just not the center main story for the country right now. And what is the center stage story right now is one where 
everyone's hunkering down. There's a real common experience that everybody has. Everyone's in their basement, in their second bedroom, or, you know, taking care of their kids at home. And that generates a sense of commonality and, and solidarity. And it just takes the spotlight off of the things which surface our biggest division. So does that mean there's the chance it changes the politics or it's just it's just a temporary distraction from the ugliness that we have sort of been accustomed to? You know, it's really just too early to say. And I would love to put my money on this doing some work to meaningfully, substantively change the amount of polarization in our country in the medium term, but it really is just not possible to make that assessment now because we're in an interesting interim period where the 2020 presidential election has not really started in earnest yet. But when it does, and if the attention of the American people is still very much on COVID, then it's going to be hard for the solidarity and the political fight to happen at the same time. So I think there's there's definitely threads of this that could carry through but it's just a bit too early to say what's going to happen. Does history tell us anything about this, though? Like um, Osama bin Laden, to, just to keep going back to him, or or the Cold War. I mean, were these events that actually changed the politics? You know, obviously, one thing that happened with Osama bin Laden and 9-11 was that it created an entirely new trajectory for part of the federal government and part of our foreign policy created the Department of Homeland Security. We changed the way the TSA works. We created an entirely new system of surveillance through the Patriot Act. And then we embarked on the longest war in American history in Afghanistan and subsequently in Iraq. So that was the, those were major shifts that happened as a result of mm. 3,000 deaths. As of the recording of this conversation, we're at around 23,000. So I think the potential for there to be significant policy changes would it does have precedent in history. I'm not so sure about the, the social element, the conflict that we're having as, as a culture and as an electorate. I don't know that we have a precedent that I could cite that would say we should be optimistic. What are you noticing, uh, as you speak with voters, what, what are you noticing about the extreme wings of each of the parties, of the, of the spectrum. There's a real difference, I think, in how this crisis is viewed at the extremes, at the edges. That's right. And so what we see on the far left and on the far right really stark in terms of the level of fear, for one. So, for instance, we have a group we refer to as progressive activists on the left, 8% of Americans. They're all Democrats, but they're especially progressive and activist. And nearly 60% believe it's likely that they're going to contract the coronavirus, whereas among devoted conservatives, their conservative counterpart on the far right, only 17% think that. So that's less than a third. And we see that there's much greater tendency on the right to say the media is overstating this or overblowing it. I don't think it's likely that me or somebody I know is likely to get this. On the progressive left, it's the opposite. The progressive left shows some of the highest levels of concern. Mm. And really, I think what that indicates is partly about the media, (laughs) because the media is the real villain in the story of people on the far right, because they view the media as constantly attacking this administration and the president. 
and they view this with a lot of suspicion, suspicion that this in turn is another weapon of the mainstream media to undermine the president and make him look bad. In our survey, we asked, in this moment of the coronavirus pandemic, has your attitude changed towards any of these groups of professions? And we found that Democrats on the whole, more than half of them said, I'm more grateful for journalists and reporters. And Republicans, only 12% of them said that, right? Big, big gap. And among devoted conservatives, that far right-wing group I mentioned, only 1% said that they were more grateful for journalists and reporters. And so that's the tension that's still very clearly present in the midst of all of this is around the medium. Fascinating. But there is more commonality, it sounds like, around healthcare workers or, you know, maybe yeah. gro- grocery store clerks. It's, it's almost like rally around the flag has become rally around the nurse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we ask people if, as I mentioned, whether they feel more gratitude towards certain professions. And actually, we said explicitly, do you believe that anybody deserves to be considered a hero in this moment? And those questions just were really uncontroversial in terms of the way that people responded to them across parties. Overwhelmingly, people are saying, yes, emergency personnel like firefighters and police, but especially nurses and doctors and hospital staff deserve to be considered heroes, and I'm much more grateful to have them. And that was true of even of grocery store staff. So 65% of Americans said that they believe that grocery store staff deserve to be considered heroes, and 84% said the same about medical workers. As I observe some of what you're telling me, it's so fascinating because it's so often that medical professionals are the ones on the radio, on the television, in articles who are conveying the information about how serious this pandemic is. And it's as if some folks trust them implicitly, except the moment they go on the airwaves. Is that... (laughs) Right. Well, it's a complicated picture where there's, I think, a differentiation between the spokesperson of government agencies, especially international health agencies like the WHO, versus the everyday doctor and nurse putting in 18-hour shifts and working seven days a week. And there's a bit of resentment at the spokesperson expert level, especially as some of maybe contradictions have emerged around recommendations around wearing masks, which is discouraged and then now encouraged. Mm. And there's you know, suspicion that these agencies, government agencies like the CDC or the WHO may not have, may not always be just providing the most straightforward read of what's happening in the country. And they're less likely to be the ones that are directly taking the risk by exposing themselves to the patients. But there's a real commonality in viewing it as heroes, medical personnel across the political spectrum. We're talking about how COVID-19 might be shifting, if not our politics, our focus on politics and our conversations around politics. Stephen Hawkins joins us, research director for More in Common. As I mentioned, this is a group that seeks to fight political polarization around the world. Are you seeing similar trends in other countries? I don't know if you work in Italy, for instance, or is this, as you've described it, a purely American phenomenon, or does it resonate in other places? So we haven't done our own research in other countries yet, so I can't speak to the specifics of that. I know that YouGov is doing some research like that, which is showing that there is some commonality in these 
you know, any experiences that different countries are having with the sense of shared experience, the sense of um, respect and appreciation for doctors. But just to put a little bit of scale on where we're seeing these changes in the United States and the extent of that, we asked Americans right after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which now feels like it was a century ago. Supreme but it was Court just justice. before the Supreme Court justice hearing, yes, right before the 2018 midterm um, elections. And 4% of Americans at that time said that the country felt unified to them. Today, that number is 32%. Oh, wow. So that's an eightfold increase. Now, 32% is still not a great number <laughs> in the general scheme of things. But relative to where we were a few years ago, and I would say if we'd measured that just in December or January, we would have seen similar numbers. That's a significant shift. And the sense that now the main story of what's happening in the United States is that we're confronting this virus means that whereas a few years ago, about 60 percent of Americans said that we're all in this together, that number is now 90 percent. And so there's just a greater sense of shared difficulty and shared experience that is just reducing a little bit of the edge of the conflict we're seeing in, in the United States political system. More to be seen on the global stage then. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Stephen Hawkins of Denver. He's research director for More in Common, a nonprofit that fights political polarization. He's also engaged to be married. And Colorado Matters continues after a break with why Temple Grandin is thinking a lot about the International Space Station right now. This is CPR News. As we all navigate significant disruptions to our normal routines, Colorado Public Radio is deeply grateful for the central force of donors who continue to sustain the news and music we all rely on, CPR's Evergreen members. Your crucial monthly donations are the reliable support CPR can count on during these uncertain times. Evergreen gifts come in all sizes, and their collective impact is felt every day. Thank you for being a Colorado Public Radio Evergreen member. Temple Grandin, the renowned animal scientist and autism educator, joins us now. The CSU professor has advice during the stay-at-home order for people on the spectrum, but turns out her ideas help neurotypicals, too. Temple Grandin, thank you for being with us again. Great to be here. For parents of kids with autism... What's the most important thing to consider right now with daily life upended? Uh, the first thing I would do is make a new schedule. One of the things that's really helped me and it's made me feel a whole lot better is I get up in the morning, I get dressed, and I'm ready for work at 8 o'clock. I'm not slouching around in my pajamas. And that's made a big difference. We're going to have to create a new schedule. We're going to get up, get dressed for school. It's going to be online now. You have a time to do that. Have a time for meals. Make a new schedule. Then maybe in the afternoon you walk the dog. And what I've been seeing around here is the dogs have never had it better. <laughs> uh, they have never seen so many dogs getting walked. And it might be fun for the kids to look at the videos of life on the International Space Station. How do they use the toilet? Sleeping, eating, dealing with garbage. It's tight quarters, and they have to get along, and they have a schedule, and they have a long time. Ah. At times, they got to do their experiments, but you're living in very, very close quarters. Those might be some really fun videos for the kids to watch. Just type into Google, life on the International Space Station. Which uh, can resemble life here on Earth right now with COVID-19. What, what would you say about screen time these days? 
Well, we're going to have screen time that is for school, so that wouldn't count. Okay, you're going to be having video conference calls. Uh, that wouldn't count. But I would limit the video games and just idle Internet surfing and YouTube watching to an hour a day. And then I've, what I've been doing for myself, I've got books that I can revise. I've got a book on animal welfare I can revise. I've got a book on humane slaughter that I'm working on just finishing up. So there's going to be some different uses of screen times. You have to do it for school. But do it like a class. Make a new schedule. I think that's the best thing. Uh, and sc- screen time, we have to differentiate these days because yes, it's almost absolutely. all screen time if you think about chatting with grandma, you know. Well, chatting with grandma, I'm not going to count yeah. put that in the same category <laughs> as video games. Yeah. But you don't want the kids spending five hours a day just idly watching YouTube videos or playing video games. I would recommend getting schoolwork done when, they're, when he's fresh. I'd try to get writing done in the morning when I'm fresh. Hmm. Do you have ideas to help kids remember to practice appropriate health precautions? You know, adults can be very careful in their hand-washing and what they touch. I can't imagine that I thought much of that at all when I was little. Well, the adults have to set the example and then follow the rules. And it's a lot like safety rules in a factory. I mean, I've worked for years, working for years in the meat industry, and, you know, there's safety rules about wearing hard hats and safety glasses and earplugs. And I've always felt that as a visitor, I always have to make sure I obey those rules. You have to set a good example for the employees. Well, it would be the same thing with uh, hand washing and things like that. The kids have got to see mom and dad do it. How do you think someone on the autism spectrum experiences the pandemic differently from others, from neurotypicals, if you will? Well, I'm an autistic person that's experiencing it from I've spent hours online researching literature got to find economical treatments because seeking knowledge turns off fear. That's something that's been learned with animals. You want to get mm. a horse that's been abused. Uh, you do use clicker training and the horse's mind is trying to like get the next click reward. And then that abused Mustang, you can start to halter it and uh, work with it because the emotion of seek turns off fear. There's actually neuroscience research so you're doing something active about it. That's fascinating. Let's repeat that phrase. The the seeking reduces fear. Fear. Well, basically, fear is a big emotion. But another big emotion is seek, the urge to explore, mm. kind of curiosity. And uh, one of the problems we have with animals is, um, let's say there's a sudden novel object, like an umbrella opening. The horse gets afraid of that. But if you took that same umbrella and you just set it in the middle of a field the horse will walk up to it because he's approaching it on his own. Mm-hmm. See, new things are attractive when they can voluntarily approach. So you turn on the seeking system, that helps to shut off fear. Okay, so how, what is the equivalent of the umbrella in the middle of the horse ring for a, chi- for a child? Well, this is the problem. I mean, this is why I think it's really important to you know, establish a new routine that the parents follow. Autistic kids are really, really into routine. But the thing that's uh, be scary for a child is now the grocery store is dangerous. Mm. That's a scary concept. Now, I'm a professional in the food industry, and I'm really worried about supply chains. And I've worked in supply chain management, and I have to say I look at food differently. I look at resources differently. Very, very careful now not to waste food. I think of the need for some with autism to learn to socialize. Are you afraid yes. that this moment will 
result in either a regression for some kids or just the, the missing of an opportunity? Well, I think it's a shame. I see all the playgrounds around town taped off with yellow tape because these are places where kids normally would socialize. And socializing online, it just isn't the same. I was just talking to one of my friends this morning saying that when she's on a video that you can't look the person in the eye because i got to look at the camera. Yeah. And if I look at the picture <laughs> in the eye, then I'm not looking at the camera. And that's kind of awkward. Little kids are getting various speech therapy and other therapies they need to be getting. Uh, therapists are trying to coach parents over the video. I've talked to parents about that. You know, there are some opportunities that are getting missed. I spend a lot of time on the phone and uh, switching to online classes. I'm finding today's students are really reluctant to use the phone because I'd almost rather talk on that. Interesting. As a person who doesn't understand, like, little social nuances, Mm -hmm. all through my life and my business, the phone has been my friend. I was very good at cold calling up a potential client and selling them a job, and then I, this is pre-internet, then I'd send them a packet full of drawings and pictures to show my work off. And uh, I was really good on the phone because uh, the social awkwardness did not show up on, on just the voice phone. I sold a lot of jobs on the phone. Yeah, it's an equalizer. I see what you mean there. And it's interesting to hear you uh, struggle with this as well as an educator. I'm Temple Grandin. Thanks so much. And I hope you stay healthy. Well, thank you so much. Professor Temple Grandin of CSU. Widespread closures have forced all religions, including six, to rethink their traditions. Here's CPR's Haley Sanchez. K.P. Singh with Denver's Sikh Gudwara sits at home with a headset on. He takes calls from people who are searching for things like groceries and other goods. Some people have a medical equipment needed. And some lady actually called us that she had to go to food bank. So we had to arrange an Uber drive for her. Normally the Gudwara, a Sikh house of worship, has a community kitchen. Once a week, they cook and make a big meal they serve to anyone who comes, not just Sikhs. It's called the Lunger, and it's one way Singh likes to give back to the less fortunate. But they can't do that anymore. And now the question becomes, how do you take care of community in a world where you can't go out to meet with community because of a pandemic response? Dilpreet Jammu is the president of the nonprofit Colorado Six. Changing the Lunger means they can actually provide food more than just once a week. That's why Singh is sitting in his home office now. People call asking for all sorts of things. They want him to place an order online or find transportation. And he arranges the logistics. We ordered from Amazon, King Super, all those places, and it gets delivered to them. Now it is anything. I mean, as simple as toilet paper. He says he gets about five requests a day. And sometimes people just want to talk. The lady said, I'm not asking for anything financial, so don't worry. But I do want to talk about this whole thing that you're doing. And she she went on and on and on and on. So it's okay, right? That That is another thing I could help. He says that's one of the reasons he doesn't mind doing this. He enjoys helping others. That, that really is the big thing here. And it is one of my principles in my religion, how we grew up. It's, it's all about sharing. Jammu, with Colorado Six, says sharing with others isn't the only thing that helps Six get through this time. Another thing that helps our community is a phrase called uh, charitikala, and that translates to always rising, always uplifting. So not only uplifting your own spirits, but uh, uplifting the spirits of others around you. He says now they're helping uplift six in other states, like Kansas, where they hope to replicate this new approach to longer and shared meals. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News.
The town of Nederland, population 1,500, has taken a big economic hit because of coronavirus. Nearby Eldora ski area is closed, and the community's big annual event, Frozen Dead Guy Days, was canceled. I knew all the local businesses would struggle to get the infusion of money they usually get in mid-March. And then with continuing business coming to a halt, that they would gravely suffer to stay alive. That is Stephanie Andelman, who before moving to Netherland lived in Los Angeles and San Francisco and can't fathom going back. She says Ned, as the town's affectionately known, is much more her speed. And as you heard, she's concerned about its future. One day, while she was staying at home watching Netflix, she had an idea to support local businesses. So I took a pencil out and drew up an idea for a website where it would be updated consistently with information about what establishment is open, what time, what their processes are for serving, and that the entire community would be able to go to this one page and see where they can still put money into the community and get the benefit of having food and drink. So she and a friend created ned2go.com. Stephanie says she spends about an hour a day updating it. It was for love of the community and the fact that I personally love to go to these establishments and I want them to be here when the virus is over, at least to the point that we're allowed to congregate again. And I want to be back at these places. But until then, she says, people don't want to cook seven nights a week. They want to know what's open. And luckily, as this site evolved, the restaurants evolved and shifted and decided what is best to serve the community. Do they offer delivery? Do they not do breakfast anymore, but they do a family dinner? And I've seen it change over the last few weeks. An example of the evolution, a local coffee shop, Salto, where normally you'd go for a cup of joe and live music, now makes family dinners for pickup. As for businesses that can't be open, Ned2Go encourages people to buy gift cards at, for example, a local instrument store. Brightwood Music, for some customer, even if they're a customer who only comes in the summer, to order a gift card today to help them pay their bills today, and they could redeem that gift card into the future. Now, Stephanie is clear. She's not encouraging out-of-towners to pour into Ned right now as they normally would. Our mayor and many of our residents have desperately asked to have our nature, our open spaces, left for locals. And this is because we are concerned about people who enjoy nature just as much as we do somehow bringing infections to us that we are working so hard to prevent an outbreak in our small town. Ever since Frozen Dead Guy got canceled on March 11th, we have been staying at home. So we just kindly request people to enjoy our outdoors with us at a later date. And our businesses, please come and enjoy our businesses in the later spring, summer, fall, and definitely the winter when Eldora will be rocking again. And Stephanie Andelman encourages folks in other small towns across Colorado to copy the approach she took with Ned2Go. I think 
that there are many small towns with struggling businesses and there are opportunities to come together and congregate the information so that everyone in the community and the, our community, the town itself has 1,500 residents, but the community, the town of Netherland services is about 8,000 people. So communities out there that have 500 to a few thousand people that they serve should think of where to put all of this information, what establishments are open, what businesses are operating, how does it help me and how can I help them? That is Stephanie Andelman, who created Ned2Go.com in hopes of softening the economic blow to Netherland of COVID-19. When you get out for your physically distanced walk this weekend, keep an ear on the sky. This is the rhythmic call of the tiny black-capped chickadee. And here's a different species that's a tad more assertive. That's a blue jay. It's spring. Birds are everywhere. You just have to look and listen, says Sarah Doxson of the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Good morning. How is your self-quarantine going? Are you paying a lot of attention to the birds outside? Yes, it's great. Um, I've been able to learn a lot more about the birds in my yard than I than I usually get to do. Ah, uh, let's imagine we're on a backyard birding tour. Um, wh- why don't we start with that first sound we heard, the black-capped chickadee. Tell me what I should mm-hmm. be looking for to spot it. So chickadees are adorable little birds. They have these big heads and round, chunky little bodies. <laughs> Um, and just like their name suggests, they have a black cap on top of their head, and they kind of have a white cheek and a black bib. Their head almost looks like an Oreo. They're cartoonish almost. They are. They're adorable. What else do you like about this bird? They are so curious and just so vivacious. They're so funny to watch. A lot of times they'll be the first birds at a feeder. They're very, very curious. They're very vocal, and they're just quite entertaining. The first birds at the feeder, they're also hungry, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that louder second bird we heard in the introduction, the blue jay, I think of this as a kind of a flashy bird. Tell us more about this species. Absolutely. They are very flashy. They're beautiful birds with that bright blue coloring um, and the crest and black and white patterning on their face. But they're also very intelligent. So a lot of people might not know they are in the corvid family, which are your crows and jays, magpies. So they're very, very smart. Um, And what they will do is actually they can mimic the sounds of other things, including like an ambulance or even other birds as well. An ambulance? Mm Mm-hmm. What, why would they do that? I mean, just because it's in their environment or th- there's something they extract out of that ability? Well, for the ambulance, I'm not really sure what the... <laughs> um, uh, you know, the adaptation would be for that. But um, I was sitting out in my yard one day and I heard a red-tailed hawk. And I looked up, looked around, and I could not find this red-tailed hawk anywhere. But what I did see was a blue jay sitting in my tree mimicking a red-tailed hawk. And that was scaring away all the birds from my neighbor's bird feeders so the blue jay could go in and have a feast. Well, it so happens that we have sound of a blue jay 
imitating a hawk. Is this to scare away other birds so that they, it they is. yeah, they get all the grub? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I think pretty much everybody could spot a robin on sight, and there are a lot of robins around. Why don't you give us a piece of trivia about uh, these birds, maybe that not everyone knows? So robins, a lot of times when you see them, they'll be um, skittering along the ground, and you might notice that they'll run and then they'll stop. They'll run and they'll stop. And they might also be tilting their head towards the ground. And what they're doing is birds do have ears, even though they don't have external flaps like we do. So when they're stopping and turning their head, they're listening and looking for worms or other tasty critters that might be in the ground. Oh, we're playing a lot of bird sounds here. Why is it important to listen to birds as well? as look for them. Talk about the kind of auditory aspect to identification. Absolutely. So a lot of times when you are going out birding, looking for birds, you are going to hear them before you see them. Um, So knowing how to identify birds Mm. or even just locate where they are by listening to them can be really, really helpful. Most of them are small or they have great camouflage, so they might be hard to see. But if you can use um, use your ears and try to pinpoint where they are, that can be really helpful. Well, that's fascinating because we think of it as bird watching, but in many respects, it is bird listening. And it's, it's possible Absolutely. Yeah, that a day goes by where you don't see a certain species, but you've heard that species. Mm-hmm. Uh, more on what birds to look for in a moment, but for folks who might be bird watching for the first time in their neighborhoods, are there tools or like technology that you think can be helpful? Absolutely. So if you have a pair of binoculars, that can be very, very helpful. But if you don't, that's okay too. If you are sitting at your window and looking out your yard, um, you can always use a field guide. A field guide, though, can be a little bit overwhelming for people who are just beginning. So my favorite app, and I still use it even though I'm not quite a beginner birder anymore, (laughs) is called Merlin, and it's put out by Cornell Lab of Ornithology. So it's a free app that you can use on your phone, and when you see a bird, it will ask you five simple questions Um, such as where you are, the three main colors that you see, what it's doing. And then it will actually narrow it down and give you a list of the possible species it could be based on the time of year and where you are. So it's it's really user-friendly. It's a great tool. So that's Merlin with an L. Yes. Yeah. And you find it to be pretty reliable. Absolutely. That's so cool. Do you give thought to giving birds their space? In other words, the, the, the balance between watching and listening to them and not encroaching too much and cramping their style. Yes, definitely. That is something very, very important, especially this time of year. Um, it's springtime. We're going into nesting season. So a lot of people are lucky enough to have a bird nest on their property, which is really, really great. But we definitely do want to be respectful and give them their space Um, If you're watching a nest, just make sure that you give it a good bit of distance um, because especially during the incubation period when 
the birds are, are keeping their eggs warm or after the chicks just hatch, maybe they don't have a lot of feathers. Mm. It's really crucial for the birds to stay on the nest and keep those chicks warm. So we don't want to scare them off. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And if life under the stay-at-home order feels a bit like rear window and you're taking in all of the sights of the neighborhood, uh, perhaps you could include birds in that. We're getting some ideas from Sarah Doxson. She's environmental educator for Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. A lot of birds migrate in the spring. And I understand the Say's Phoebe is one you particularly like. Why don't we listen to it and then talk about the Say's Phoebe? Oh, wow. Quite a complicated call there. Tell us about this bird. Yeah, they are just such charismatic little birds. They're um, a member of the flycatcher family. So you might see them um, sitting in a bush or even sitting on the eve of a house and they'll fly out and catch an insect and fly back to eat it. And they'll fly out and fly back to eat it. Um, and they have kind of a cinnamon wash on their on their belly and they're gray on their back. Um, and they tend to be more in open habitat, so in the foothills, in shrubby areas. So you might not see them in the city, but if you're in more of a suburb area, they might even nest, you know, under your eaves or something like that. And for our listeners in the high country, you suggest the mountain bluebird and looking out for the western meadowlark on the plains. Sarah, thanks so much mm-hmm. for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Sarah Doxson is an environmental educator for the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. Still to come, a Colorado singer who contorts her vocals into something otherworldly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Does keeping up with friends and family during social distancing help our physical health? Washington Post reporter Sarah Kaplan says yes. When we're around people, our physiology is calmer, and that in turn can lead to a stronger immune system. I'm Sam Brash. And I'm May Ortega. How acts of kindness can boost our physical and our mental health. And the science behind it on the latest episode of At a Distance. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Singer-songwriter Madeline Johnston describes her music as heaven metal. Her mostly solo project is called Midwife, and she does a whole lot with just a few guitar chords. Meanwhile, her heavily processed vocals add an emotional depth. Johnston just released the new Midwife album, Forever. It's a tribute to a late friend, and the record's gotten nods from Bandcamp and NPR Music. Madeline is on the phone with us, and welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Fans of Midwife are used to hearing your voice on the phone like this because at live shows, 
you actually sing into a telephone receiver. Tell me about that. Where did that come from? Yeah, so I do. I um, I build my own microphones out of old rotary phones. Uh, a few years ago, I was starting to learn some basic electronic projects and decided to learn how to make a phone mic. Uh, I just love how they sound. They have this kind of perfect amount of telephone distortion in there. Is that Portis head-like to you? I, I when, when As you describe it, that's who sprang to mind. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I guess I guess it is in a way. No. I mean, you're your own person. I'm not saying that you're... <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the quality of the sound? Is it is it that it's ethereal? Is it that... What, what is it? Uh, it's kind of cool. It, it sort of masks your voice in this way. And I don't know, maybe you experience this too, but do you ever hear the sound of your own voice and it's just really surprising like to hear what you actually sound like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It it took me a long time to feel confident in my singing voice. So I think using this microphone really kind of helped me open up to find my voice and use dynamics and different styles of singing. And I just, I can't imagine using a regular microphone now. Hmm. Is it a form of hiding? Is it a form of mask? Um, in a way. Yeah, I think it is in a way. Starting to feel I like a ther- also... therapy session. Oh. <laughs> like, so are you hiding? <laughs> I like it too. It it sort of has this intimate feeling and I think makes it a little more personable, um, like when you're on the phone with a friend or something. Hmm. Do you solder and like explain how technical this gets? Yeah, I do soldering and like basic wiring projects. Um, I started with learning contact microphones, which are really cool. You can put them onto anything and turn that into an instrument. This new Midwife album, Forever, is dedicated to the memory of your friend Colin Ward, a beloved Denver musician and artist who died in 2018. And the album opens with a song called 2018, which we heard a bit earlier. And it features some some explicit language directed at that year in particular. Tell me what 2018 was like for you. Yeah, um, it was the worst year of my life. Uh, At the beginning of 2018, Colin committed suicide, and it completely shattered our community. So this was my first encounter with death. I had never lost a loved one before. I had never lost a best friend. It was a horrible year. I didn't feel present at all. I didn't feel like I was in my body. I was just so depressed and just trying to understand it. But I think that I'll never understand it. You know, it's it's having this wound that will never heal. Are you mad at him for that? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am. It's a lot to carry around, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really hard to understand. Is there a feeling sometimes of guilt when art comes out of pain? In other words, you've taken something that's really terrible and you've made something that's really beautiful, which is a lovely transformation. But yeah. I just wonder if, if that's like a mixed feeling. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been feeling a little bit of that as well, like, because I don't want it to ever be about me. 
I want this album to be about and for Colin. Like, I don't want it to be about me, if that makes sense. I think it does, yeah. Yeah. What memory stands out about Colin Ward to you? Oh, there's so much. Um, Some of my favorite memories of him was we do all-nighters all the time and just make art and music together. And those are some of my favorite memories of him. In the wee small hours, huh? Yeah, totally. I'll just say that he was prolific. I mean, he released dozens of albums under many names. And he's on the new Midwife album, reading one of his poems. This is on the song C-R-F-W. Yeah. Those are his initials. initials. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. If you ask the leaf on a tree in autumn if it is scared to fall off the branch, it will say... I have given all I am to this tree, and I am tired, and I'll float on down now. Imagine the way a breeze feels against your leaf body while you finally don't have to hold on anymore. Madeline, where did this recording of your late friend Colin come from? So this recording was from a project all about creating collective consciousness and actualizing a magic reality. And I think these concepts are things that Colin really identified with. Can you Um, say more about that? Just for whom that might be a foreign concept? Uh, Is that like a a version of manifestation? I think so, yeah. And just kind of creating this, this oneness between people. Is songwriting therapeutic? Definitely. Making this record was really cathartic for me. It was a really integral part of my healing process and dealing with the grief. Just to kind of have somewhere to put these emotions was really huge for me. After Colin passed, all I wanted was to feel closer to him. And I think making this album allowed me to feel more connected to him, which is, you know, all I wanted after he was gone. The track Swim on this new album from Midwife, it's the closing track, and it strikes me as a bit more upbeat than the songs that came before it. What's the story behind this one? And and was it supposed to be uplifting? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I initially thought this song was probably the darkest one on the record, but people have been having a really positive response to it which I think is really cool, and it kind of changed how I think about it now, too. Um, I definitely wrote it with Colin in mind. I also wrote it for my friend Jonathan, and basically just wrote it as a sort of anthem for anyone who's struggling right now. I think it's kind of about how there's some comfort in knowing you won't live forever, that it makes our time more meaningful.
Madeline Johnston, I understand you would have been in Europe this week, touring with the new album. Uh, Needless to say, COVID-19 derailed those plans. I mean, shutting down the live music industry. How are you handling that? Yeah, it's really surreal. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm definitely sad to not be on tour, but obviously that's the socially responsible thing to do. You like touring? I love touring, but I think I've been just trying to take some of that energy and trying to focus more on working at home on things and just trying to take it one day at a time. Has this been a creative time? Yeah, I've definitely been more inspired to work on new things. Um, There's a lot of collaboration happening right now, which is really cool. Everyone's just kind of working on things at home, you know, and everybody's probably just wanting to feel that connectedness right now more. You know, I keep hearing about how there are going to be all these babies that, (laughs) you know, that were were conceived during the stay-at-home order. Yeah. I, I, I I wonder if there's an artistic version of that. In other words, all these sort of brain children will be born, new albums and new books and things from this really fraught time. I think so, for sure. Like this incubation period. We'll see what hatches for you then. Thanks, Madeline. (laughs) Thank you so much. Madeline Johnston is the Denver musician behind Midwife. Her new album is Forever. She'll perform at 5 this afternoon on Midwife's Facebook page. Finally today, we are preparing a special show for Monday. We call it Making Ends Meet, an hour dedicated to answering questions about financial assistance in the face of COVID-19, from unemployment to help for small businesses. Where is the money? How much is there? And who is still reeling? We welcome your questions. So tweet us using the hashtag AskCM or email coloradomatters at CPR.org. Real stories, real answers Monday. It's making ends meet from Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. CPR News.